this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Salna, and I'm a resident in cardiothoracic surgery at Columbia New York Presbyterian Hospital. Today, I am joined by Dr. Paul Kurlansky to discuss the process of publishing in academic journals and common pitfalls to avoid. Dr. Kurlansky is an associate professor of surgery at Columbia in the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery, as well as the director of research, recruitment, and continuous quality improvement for Columbia HeartSource. He is also the associate director for the Center for Innovation and Outcomes Research. He's the former director of research at the Florida Heart Institute in Miami and serves as the associate statistical editor for the Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery. Dr. Kurlansky, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Michael. So to start off, Dr. Kurlansky, let's say that you have a research question, something you want to investigate. How do you go about turning this into a publishable manuscript? So I think the first and perhaps most important thing is try to ask an important question. Um, People sometimes are very, feel very compelled to come up with a topic and come up with a paper and try to get something published. Uh, and you find these strange articles like Operation X has become very popular, but how it impacts people born on Thursday who are left-handed has, yet been, has not yet been explored. And the reason why it has not been explored is because who cares? So, on the, on the other hand, you know, there may be unique facets to the topics that are being well explored that you're interested in. In any event, the most important thing is to try to ask an important question. And from there, try to refine the question and develop a hypothesis. Next, you have to ask some very practical questions. What resources and data are available to me in order to be able to answer this question. Ideally, maybe I would like to do X, but maybe I can't do X. Maybe I can, so we can explore that, but maybe I can't. And so what could I reasonably do? And with the information that is potentially available to me, what questions could I reasonably answer? It's better to do a thorough and meaningful job on a small piece uh, rather than a poor job on a big, on a big question. Um, and, uh, and once you have sort of uh, defined your, your question and you have a clear hypothesis, then you can use that in order to uh, d develop a research plan. And once you develop, and then you engage a statistician, work with them ideally to develop the methodology, uh, and then you're off. Uh, and uh, the other approach, uh, which is becoming uh, much more popular, rather than hypothesis-driven research, is data-driven research, um, where big data and using artificial intelligence and other resources uh, sometimes can lead you in, you can use the data to lead you in directions that you might not ordinarily be able to hypothesize. There are there may be subtle associations that you're not aware of, uh, that you are, are which emerge from sophisticated analysis analysis of large data sets. This is another 
separate sort of field of, of research which is emerging uh, and rather than hypothesis driven is data driven um, and if you have the uh, you know the data sources and the wherewithal to try to investigate uh, such uh, questions you know that's also a separate approach so let's say that you have um, formulated a hypothesis driven question unrelated to left-handed people born on Thursdays <laughs> and uh, are ready to start your quantitative or statistical analyses. Are there certain things aspiring authors should be certain to include or cannot afford to omit? Well, I think probably one, one of the most common mistakes, uh, certainly in the surgical world, but I suspect that it is not uncommon in the medical world also, is the failure to uh, engage a statistician early in the process. Uh, and really, uh, statisticians can be extremely helpful to you at the inception of the project uh, in order to try to decide what is the most meaningful methodology and how and, and statistical approach. Um, and all too often, people uh, put together their project and then at the, at the end ask the statistician, you know, okay, give me the p-values. Uh, and, you know, the, the p-values uh, don't really mean anything if you didn't ask the right questions or do it in the right way. Uh, and so, and may actually be misleading. So, uh, I, I think that's probably one of the first things you should do. What if you don't have access to a statistician? So, that's a, that is a tough situation. And um, really, you have to try to uh, find that access one way or another. Uh, the reason why, and there are, sometimes there are sources, certainly in university settings, that those sources are maybe much more robust. Um, outside of the university setting, they may be a little bit harder to find. But the um, problem is that if you are serious about publishing, the uh, threshold for statistical sophistication in the literature has uh, gone up uh, quite dramatically in recent years. Uh, studies that uh, I was proud of publishing, you know, uh, 10 years ago, I would be perhaps uh, some of them embarrassed to submit nowadays uh, based upon the uh, rudimentary nature of the statistics that uh, uh, was used. Uh, so, and, and so what journals are, are requesting, uh, frequently uh, most journals, uh, certainly the higher level journals, will have a statistical review uh, independent of the clinical review. Uh, and so you have to be prepared for that. Uh, and, and so it really, uh, it, you know, whether you like it or not, it's, but, but the, the reason for this is, uh, is not unfounded. And that is that, um, you know, it was, a, it was a very disturbing article written by John Ioannidis. Uh, he's now at Stanford, but this was actually before he was at Stanford. I think he was still in Greece at the time. Uh, it was published in PLOS, uh, so you can look it up, but it's well, something to the effect is why is most research false uh, or not true? And uh, basically what he was pointing out is that even in published, uh, even in, uh, published work, uh, the statistical methodology is so shady and, uh, and inadequate, really, uh, that uh, many of the results which are published actually are subsequently found to be untrue. 
Great. So let's shift gears. As an associate editor yourself, uh, let's talk about some things from the perspective of a reviewer and editor. What What is the process by which reviewers and editors actually review articles? What kind of challenges do they face? So usually um, what happens is that the, the, the editors or the associate editors look at the article and say, is this something we're interested in? Uh, and that is, uh, that's a sort of an initial screening process. Uh, and frequently, uh, you know, some journals are actually very nice because if you don't get through that initial screening process, they don't torture you and they just <laughs> let you know right away, forget it, it ain't going to. Um, and that has to do with, uh, with something that, you know, that the journal maybe, uh, the journal feels is not appropriate. It may be a very good article, but it's not appropriate for what we do. Or it may be political, they may not want that, <laughs> that topic discussed, or they don't like that result, or for any of a number of reasons. But um, so there, there's an initial decision, is this article appropriate for this journal? And then uh, if it is, then they'll send it out for peer review. Um, now, the peer review process is not a perfect process by any means, and there are some enormous challenges. Uh, most people do it uh, of their own, you know, uh, goodwill and uh, do a very good job, and some people do an excellent job. Um, some people uh, pay it less attention, don't do such a good job, but the, uh, but the challenges are enormous. Uh, you know, there's a, um, there is currently been a uh, upsurge in uh, retraction of papers even from very high um, you know high profile investigators uh, one no notable researcher from Harvard just had 31 papers retracted uh, because of falsification of data and as an editor you know this is a nightmare because uh, you can't necessarily tell whether data has been falsified. Um, you may or may not get an in, you know a uh, an inkling as to whether or not it's if if it doesn't seem to fit or if this or that that, um, but uh, it it is very difficult sometimes to tell and even the fact that it doesn't seem to uh, correspond to your understanding of the situation may in fact be the strength of the article or it may be. <laughs> because uh, this, this is uh, totally novel because it's not true. Uh, and, and you can't always, and sometimes you just cannot always make that distinction. So that, that's one thing that is, is sort of a nightmare that's always in the back of mind of editors. Um, you know, another related to uh, people's honesty is that uh, recently it's been shown that uh, many people do not disclose their conflicts of interest uh, to very high profile uh, people who recently lost their positions, one at Memorial Sloan Kettering, one at Yale, for failure to disclose uh, quite significant conflicts of interest in their work. Uh, and a recent uh, JAMA surgery article uh, went through a selection of people who on the CMS website had received uh, significant uh, financial support from industry and found that about only a third of the articles that they published actually had disclosure of that information. So um, there are certain things that, you know, the system relies on, on the uh, honesty and goodwill of the reviewers as well as the honesty and goodwill of the authors. And unfortunately, people aren't always honest, and so it's an imperfect system. Um, so th those, are the, those are kind of the, the big nightmares that, uh, you know, editors uh, uh, have. But 
uh, you know, in working through the process, if, if nothing uh, untoward emerges, you know, it's, it's a matter of, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the reviews of the, uh, of the reviewers as well as the opinions of the editors. And sometimes the editors, uh, you know, uh, um, overrule the, uh, the reviewers and vice versa. You know, I've, I've had some very benign reviews for papers that have been rejected. And I, I, I'm there like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, you know, we, we've chosen not to, you know, and then I read the reviews, great paper, you know, really interesting, you know, it, you know and I'm there, what? Uh, so it, it uh, you, you can't always tell what's going on under the covers. And, and the, the, uh, the reviewers, you know, aren't always correct either. Uh, they they have their opinions, and sometimes they say things that are very opinionated, or some things that are patently false or incorrect. Uh, so, and that that's sort of the editor's job to to be um, you know to govern that. And what are your opinions on retrospective versus prospective trials? Do you do you think that one has more strengths over the other? So this is fascinating, um, particularly in the world of surgery. Um, Supposedly, the highest level of evidence is the prospective randomized control trial, double-blinded, uh, and uh, you know I guess the high the, at the peak of the pyramid would be a, a well-done meta-analysis of such trials on a given topic. Uh, the problem in surgery is uh, enormous. First of all, the problem between retrospective and prospective uh, data is the is that uh, when you do a prospective randomized controlled trial, you want to try to remove bias from the study. So you tend to eliminate patients who are going to have conditions which will necessarily bias the outcome. Uh, patients who may have renal failure, patients who have congestive heart failure, or patients who are of a certain age, or on and on and on. The problem with that is that you wind up with a clean sample which is not necessarily representative of the patient population that you will clinically find. So frequently you'll have, you know, of those who are screened, only about 5 to 10 percent of patients who actually were found to be appropriate and consented to the study. And so what you have is a very clean study of 5% uh, of, of the patient population. And then, and unfortunately, as a clinician, you're taking care of the other 95% as well and trying to figure out how to apply that information to that other 95% is not necessarily automatic. Uh, and so this is a huge issue. Uh, you know, you saw it uh, recently in the, uh, uh, what's it, SPRINT, the, uh, the, the hypertension trial, uh, and, you know, had very notable exclusions from that. So what is the threshold for hypertension? They actually used that trial to redefine hypertension. Uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, there may be many patients with renal failure and other existing uh, conditions which were excluded from that trial uh, that are may be the bread and butter of what you're actually taking care of. So how to apply those results becomes a problem with the prospective trial, whereas the retrospective trial is it may be totally inclusive of, of the real world. The problem is because all the choices were made uh, before the before you got there. It's it becomes a uh, a little bit of a retrospective uh, challenge to figure out and wade through the data and try to figure out what was done and what it means. And so, you know, people use uh, statistical uh, analytics to try to do that, but the statistical analytics are limited by the fact that you can only control for factors that you're aware of. Uh, the beauty of prospective randomized control studies is you have 
you control for factors you're aware of and factors you're not aware of, whereas in a retrospective trial, you're only controlling for the factors that you're aware of. Now, it, the hope is that the more of those factors that you can include into your statistical models, the higher the probability that you're also controlling for some of the un uh, some of the factors that you may not be consciously aware of or have data on, uh, but that's more inferential and not necessarily is going to be the case. So there, the bottom line is that the definitive trial has never been published and never will be published. There, there, there is validity to large retrospective trials, there is validity to prospective trials, uh, but neither one is actually what I would consider the gold standard. When you have a topic where uh, what's interesting is you have a topic where the prospective trials and the retrospective trials agree with each other. You have much more confidence. Where they disagree, you now have to really, uh, you know, it's uh, what uh, John Kennedy referred to, the discomfort of human thought, right? You really have to try to stop and think about why this is and what's going on. Now, in surgery, there's a whole nother layer of complexity to this because if you are, if you have a medication and you are uh, comparing, you know, this medication to placebo, uh, it is true that the medication has different pharmacodynamics and may be different in different people and whatnot. But the medication itself is what it is; it's the same. Whereas, if you're comparing an operation, every surgeon does may do that operation somewhat differently and care for those patients somewhat differently. So. Already, there's a there's an issue that what is uh, what is being studied is not exactly the same. But there's even a, a bigger problem in uh, doing prospective randomized control studies of surgical technique, um, and it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit subtle. But if if you want to compare technique A with technique B, let's for for example. So who are you going to get to, to do the operations? You're going to get people who know how to do technique A. Now, why do they know how to do technique A? Because they believe that technique A is a good operation, and they do it. Now, if they believe that technique A is really a good operation, how much equipoise are they going to have to enter patients into a prospective randomized controlled trial because they really think that technique A is better than technique B and that's why they're good at it and that's why they do it. So even if they agree, so many people are not gonna even agree to randomize. Mm -hmm. And so many of the people who actually do the technique the best may not even agree to randomize. And so they're not gonna be in the trial. So now you're gonna get some of the less expert operators so it doesn't really test the technique well if they agree to randomize what they're going to do is oh no 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 this patient uh, i'm not going to randomize this patient because this patient really needs it this patient well, maybe yes maybe no so we can randomize it mm. so what does that do that automatically biases the study towards the mean so and, and there have been several studies, surgical trials, which have biased towards the mean and, and wind up with no significant difference, be specifically because the patient selection was not really based on a true equipoise. 
And so there are many challenges, there are many limitations to a prospective randomized controlled trial, even though it's considered the gold standard, but there are even greater um, uh, barriers, let's say, to a surgical trial. Um, you know, one of, one of the examples of potentially this is the recent ARC trial uh, of uh, bilateral versus single mammary artery grafting, but it turned out that uh, uh, 23% of the patients in both arms got radial artery grafts, and so <laughs> it was really not a trial of, of arterial versus non-arterial revascularization, and about 15 or more, I forget the exact number, or percent of patients who were supposed to get bilateral mammaries didn't get bilateral mammaries, and so it wasn't really a, a trial of, of uh, you know, and if you look at actually the, the results based on those patients who got multiple arterial grafting versus single arterial grafting, there was highly significant differences in mortality and outcome. So uh, understanding all of these sort of limitations, I mean, the world's an imperfect place. That's why the perfect study has never been or will be published, but understanding all of these limitations are extremely important in how you analyze the data. It doesn't mean that things shouldn't get published. You know, everything, every imperfect study makes a little, potentially, hopefully, a little incremental benefit to our knowledge, but it has to be taken in the perspective uh, of, of its limitations. So that, that brings up an interesting question uh, with regards to methodology and challenges that you see as a reviewer and editor. What are some other common pitfalls uh, that you see authors making in the papers that you review? So... Uh, there, there are first there are, there are general pitfalls. You know, you can see sometimes there's a disconnect between the clinicians and the and the statisticians. Sometimes they, the clinicians thought they were statisticians, and they did very poor job. Other times you have uh, sort of a disconnect where the, uh, the the clinicians just sort of gave the paper over to the statisticians, and it's a wonderful statistical exercise. It doesn't add any clinical value or meaning. Um, I, the, on a technical point of view, some of the more common things that you see, um, people love to take continuous variables and make them categorical variables because if you then divide it in two, you can compare A versus B, and now you have your, P, your tables, your p-values, everything <laughs> very nice. It's much more complicated to try to understand uh, a continuous variable, but the truth of the matter is you always lose information when you do that. And not only do you lose information, you may misrepresent the true nature of the relationship. What you really need to do with a continuous variable is first just look at the relationship of the variable to your outcome and see if is, is it a linear relation, is it is a U-shaped relation, is it a, the parabolic, is it, does it have a threshold and then it takes off? What is the nature of the relationship? And that will help you to determine what the most appropriate statistical methodology to try to understand it. But if you don't go that extra step, you know, you may actually, if you had a U-shaped relationship and you make the division right in the middle of the U, now you're going to have no difference between the two and you actually, what you have is, uh, is there's a dramatic difference at the low end and at the high end and you're going to miss it completely just by making that a categorical variable. So uh, that's one of the most common things. One of the most 
difficult things to do is, uh, is longitudinal follow-up. First of all, it's very difficult to do good follow-up, and, and the question always comes is, how com what was the methodology of the follow-up and how complete is the information? If you're only working with, you know, you do a, a follow-up study of uh, graft patency, but you only have like 15 to 20 percent of the patients were ever studied, how do you, how do you uh, work with that? Uh, if you're doing a mortality study and you only have, you're missing 30, 40 percent of the, of the data because you're using SSDI after, the, after 2011, how do you account for that? And sometimes, you know, you just have to go with what you got and do the best you can. But even then, you have to look at very carefully analyze who are the, don't, you can't assume that data, whether it's follow-up data or any data, is missing at random. Uh, sometimes it is missing at random, but you cannot make that assumption. So you have to look at those patients uh, on whom you have complete information, those patients on whom you do not have complete information, and then take all of the variables that you do have information on and compare them. And that will tell you how likely it is that you're biasing your study by, the, by drawing conclusions from those that you do have information on. Uh, it may be that those, you know, that they seem to represent the, the general population of your study and it's reasonable to, to you still can't be sure, but it's, it's more reasonable. On the other hand, you may find major differences. Uh, you know, perhaps those patients who, who, you know, in the case of, let's say, a follow-up of graft patency, those patients in, who you have studies were those who presented with uh, clinical symptoms or those who were patients who were followed more closely or any of a number of things that may make that uh, not missing at random. One of the other more challenging things in, in longitudinal follow-up is when you're dealing with something which is not a distinct dated event. So if you're looking at mortality, uh, it is what, uh, what Gene Blackstone calls a hard endpoint, you know, and it's a binary outcome. And, and the one outcome excludes the other outcome. So, and it happened on a certain day. Life and death are so, mutually exclusive. So life and death are mutually exclusive, and it happened on a certain day. So from a statistical point of view, uh, it is very clean to try to analyze that. You can use your Kaplan-Meier curves and you can use your Cox regression and all these sorts of methodologies, which are, are based on binary outcome. However, let's say you're looking at something a little bit fudgier, like uh, recurrence of mitral regurgitation after a mitral valve repair. Now, you could uh, and clinically reasonably make a cut point uh, and say you have uh, the, the greater than two plus mitral regurgitation, and let's assume you have a core lab. And let's say you have a, you know, a core lab with, without, you know, and you've looked at your interim observer uh, reliability and all those sorts of things, uh, and you have, uh, you know, so you have reasonable analysis and you have clinical basis for saying that greater than two plus mitral regurgitation is significant and less than that is, is not going to be considered uh, mitral regurgitation for the purpose of your study. You still have another problem, and that is that at the time of the echo, the patient may have three plus mitral regurgitation. That does not mean that that patient has had, that that occurred on that day. It may have occurred at any point since the last test, which showed it wasn't there, uh, whether that was three months ago or six months ago. And as regards mitral regurgitation, it's even more complicated because even though the patient may have mitral regurgitation on that day, 
when the loading conditions, the hyper, the blood pressure, the volume required, volume loading, etc., changes, that same patient may go down to two plus mitral regurgitation by the time you do the next echo, depending upon how they were treated medically. So it becomes an extremely difficult, it's what's called an interval variable, and you have to do uh, multi-state analysis, so longitudinal mixed modeling, uh, which is a, a, a particular area of statistical analysis. The reason why I don't expect everybody to be able to do that, what I do every, expect people to be able to do is to recognize those situations where the application of what is appropriate for mortality is not appropriate for other parameters that you may be measuring over time. Um, another example would be, for example, something like readmission. So you're looking at uh, readmission over time. So you have to take certain things into account. First of all, death is a competing variable for readmission. If the patient is not alive, the patient's not going to get readmitted. So if you, you know, if you have a uh, situation where 100% of the patients died, then your readmission rate is going to be zero, right? <laughs> so uh, on the other hand, uh, readmission itself uh, is a complex uh, dimension because uh, a patient who gets readmitted may be more likely to be readmitted again in the future. So it's a potentially repeating outcome. It's not a definitive-like mortality. It, it is binary. The patient did or did not get readmitted, and they did or did not get readmitted on a certain day. But unlike mortality, it can be repeated. Uh, and not only can it be repeated, it's a potentially repeating variable with death as a competing variable, but it also there is a aspect of clustering. In other words, a patient who gets readmitted may be more likely to get readmitted in the future. So therefore, analysis which assumes the independence of each outcome would not be an appropriate form of analysis for studying readmission. So all of these, these are just common examples of pitfalls that are very common in reviewing articles. This is why discussion with a statistician up front uh, when you're planning your study becomes extremely important. Yeah, those, those examples all sort of underscore the importance of involving someone with statistical expertise uh, because I think a lot of people might not have even considered, you know, the differences in variables, particularly with the readmission example. Uh, so one final question, Dr. Kurlansky. Let's say that you have uh, gone through the whole process with your question and your research project and your paper is rejected. Uh, what are some recommendations you have or what, what are some, uh, some advice you may give to authors for their next steps? Uh, become morbidly depressed and do not ever submit another article uh, because obviously you're a failure. No, uh, uh, it's very important not to fall into that trap because that is not an uncommon initial emotional reaction. However, um, you have to understand many possible uh, things here. First of all, the reason why your article is rejected, maybe there are reasons that are completely 
independent of the validity of your work. It may just be a function that the, the journal that you submitted to, number one, is not interested in that topic terribly or is not interested in that topic now or may even politically not want that outcome to be published right now. Mm. Uh, I, I had the privilege of, uh, back in the years when on-pump versus off-pump coronary artery bypass grafting was a very hot topic. Uh, there was a study that was done at, at uh, Emory, which was unusually well done for a surgical study. It was a prospective randomized controlled study of on-pump versus off-pump surgery with uh, 95 to 100% one-year angiographic follow-up. It was an extremely well-done study, and I was reviewing this for the New England Journal of Medicine, and although there were, I don't know, my standard, you know, 10 or more different comments that I, uh, opportunities that I had found for improvement in the article, it never occurred to me that they wouldn't take this paper because it was so well done and it was such a hot topic. And of course, they did not take it. They rejected the paper and wound up publishing another paper, which was much more poorly done from England, which showed that off-pump surgery was not as good as on-pump surgery. Uh, so it was clear, and it was clear to me that this was sort of more of an editorial than a scientific de decision. That paper, from memory, by the way, was uh, subsequently accepted in another major journal. So, uh, but uh, so awareness of the fact that uh, I mean, a certain amount you have to uh, take this into account when you're submitting and try to submit to a place that is interested in the topic that you are studying, but also. You cannot uh, always account for random editorial decisions that have nothing to do with the validity of what your uh, of your study or your findings. That's the first thing. The, the second thing is that um, take a look at the comments of the reviewers. There may be a disconnect between the the comments of the reviewers and the editorial decision. Uh, you know, I've had papers rejected where the, the uh, comments of the reviewers said, great paper, you know, really interesting, da 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 and then the, the editor says, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, so it's not always obvious, and the reviewers aren't always right in what they say, but nonetheless, uh, take a very serious look at what the reviewers have said and see if they have good points. Uh, I've certainly had reviewers uh, make some very good points and actually have completely redone uh, studies and resubmitted them based on the comments of the reviewers because they had very valid uh, criticisms or you know identified very uh, important shortcomings. Uh, so I would uh, recommend that you, you take very seriously the comments of the reviewers plus anything that the, that the editors have uh, offered you uh, in order to see if you should be doing something to uh, to improve the paper um, and then don't give up. Uh, you know, if you believe in what you're doing, uh, you know, submit it, uh, submit it elsewhere. You know, sometimes rejections are, aren't clear rejections. Uh, they give you an opportunity. They say, you know, don't doesn't look good, but you can you can resubmit it. Uh, and don't be afraid to defend what excuse me to defend what you do if you believe strongly in it. Um, you know, I I actually successfully defended a paper from uh, from. Uh, 
from my superior, you know, I'm an associate statistical editor at uh, General Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery. The statistical editor uh, is uh, Gene Blackstone, who is a brilliant, uh, nothing short of brilliant statistician. Um, and I had to defend the paper that we submitted against his criticism and actually won uh, based on the, on the logic of, of, what, uh, of what I was trying to convey. Uh, so don't be afraid to defend your paper. Uh, if you think you're right, but don't be don't be pigheaded about it. You know, t take very seriously the the criticisms that have been made. Uh, but uh, and if if you have you know if you've taken as far as you can with that journal, then don't be afraid to submit it to another journal. Um, I had a very interesting uh, but telling uh, story. Uh, Bob Meyerberg was the, uh, for many years, was the chairman of uh, cardiology at the University of Miami. He's a university professor, a very major figure in uh, arrhythmia and uh, sudden cardiac death. Uh, he told me about a paper that he had written uh, and submitted to circulation. Uh, and uh, it got rejected. He sent it to two or three other journals, got rejected, was speaking about the topic with the editor. So the, the editors of circulation had changed in the interim, and he was speaking with the new editor about the topic, and the editor said, well, why don't you send that to us? You know, and he said, well, I did. They got rejected. He said, send it again, <laughs> you know, and there's, uh, it got published. So uh, even from the same journal, you can't always necessarily, uh, you know, predict what's going on. I submitted a paper to uh, the surgical supplement of uh, circulation, and one of the surgical editors uh, who's a friend of mine, you know, wrote to me and said that there's no way that they can take this because of this, 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 and this. You know, why don't you try this? Why don't you try this? And I said, well, unfortunately, I can't try this but uh, because it's not practical. But I, and then I very strongly defended the paper, you know, be, but because of this, 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 and this. And uh, sure enough, not only did circulation take the paper, but the American Heart Association decided to make a press release and released it, you know, the findings of the paper, et cetera. So um, don't be afraid to, uh, uh, to believe in what you've done. Uh, but don't be pig-headed, you know, and, and listen to listen to valid criticism and try to improve your work. But uh, don't be afraid uh, to be proud of uh, what you've uh, done as well. Well, Dr. Kurlansky, thank you so much for your valuable insight to, into this topic. Uh, I'm sure our listeners really appreciate it. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you.